好一克罗哈一波隆隆，一个阿里里勒呼阿吉里呼尼内，卡乌阿诺伊奥鲁卡曼纳欧，吼尼吼尼阿耶内卡布乌维。Welcome to the Kingless Generation, a podcast on the deep history of class struggle. Paleo parapolitics and the demonology of capital. I'm your host, Fergal Schmudlock. I hope you're doing all right over here in Tokyo. It's getting we're going fast into summer weather.、Uh, you can hear some insects. You can hear some sirens from the ongoing pandemic. The、uh, restrictions have been lifted, and workers have been sent back to work without many much protection.、Um, Of course, the other side of that, thinking dialectically, is that there's no res- major restrictions on freedom of movement, and that overall is a good thing. I hope that's not just because、uh, it's, it's all set in motion for the world war that's coming, and they know they're going to be able to get their capital that way and their, you know, whatever other goals. But we'll keep an eye on that. But today, here we are with、uh, presenting a, a standard major religious. Text from pre-modernity, and、uh, this time we're in ancient India. We're going to be reading from the Bhagavad Gita, right?、Uh, this this is a major in- interest of ours we, to go with our strategies of new world order resistance. We got to have strategies of old world order resistance because、uh, the real story is of the whole world system, which goes back about five thousand years, not five hundred years, right? As much as you know, four or four hundred years ago, we still had、uh, hunter gatherers. Two thirds of humanity was still living hunter gatherer、uh, outside the state, outside of class struggle,、uh, to whatever degree. Yeah, but、um, yeah, so we have to we have to look at、uh, what we largely have from the pre-modern cultures is written texts. We don't, we can't, and so you have to do materialist analysis through the written text. That's always a bit of a challenge. Uh, but of course, we have archaeology to help us out,、uh, and what we always find is that these ideas, religious ideas, often have some kind of resistant kernel. You know, they are weapons in class struggle. That's what I want to say. There's weapons in class struggle, and we are examining those weapons. How do they work? When do they flip? And and how can they be used by the other side? Yeah, you have the rulers、uh, saying one kind of thing. You know, there's a There's a god. There's a king, and they, you have to produce the grain for the and give your taxes for them and and everything. But then you also get the sort of like, oh, there's this king. That, there's the god that is is correcting the king or critiquing the king, and there's a, you know, you can have actually worker power, peasant power coming from that. And、uh, all the great religious traditions in the world have both of these sides, and we're going to see that that's the case、uh, today as well. And it's really almost just a matter of how do you make it work? How do you make it live in the moment, right? What is your、uh, chidran? Is is a term from Zen、uh, literature, Chinese Zen literature about like the how do you roll? How do you、uh, flip? How do you do the judo flip with your、uh, in the moment with your discourse? Yeah. So the Bhagavad Gita is very much a living text today. It is looked to as the basis of Brahmanist ideology that w- would be represented most strongly today by Modi, Narendra Modi, the president of India, who's very far right.、Uh, he's、uh, there's an intense class struggle happening there in India. He has imposed neoliberal land reforms and things. 
uh, and the largest general strikes in world history have been mobilized to overturn some of these laws and to fight Modi, right? And you have just an immensely diverse uh, group of people in India. You have Muslims. You have many, many different uh, nationalities there within the territory that is, is named by this colonial designation India and taken over by later colonial compradores, you know, uh, of whom Modi is only the latest one. And uh, yeah, so their ideology there is, is Brahmanism. And that is, is a very class-based, uh, class society, right-wing uh, interpretation of the Bhagavad Gita. And we have today uh, also a book by the foremost uh, materialist critic, one of the, one, uh, the greatest, uh, Ajit. And I have a book uh, from Foreign Languages Press called Critiquing Brahmanism, which critiques the dominant bourgeois idealist comprador interpretation of the Bhagavad Gita. We're going to read that together. There's a lot of really brilliant essays here, uh, taking up in an extremely dialectical way, right? As he, as he says at some point, you know, like the, the Indian philosophical tradition is extremely dialectical, thinking about how opposites can morph into one another, right? And uh, things go back and forth between uh, their, their opposites. Pr propositions contain their opposites often. And the same weapon can be turned against its wielder. The same thing can do opposite work in different contexts and moments. And although the so-called Western tradition, which indeed is kind of a commentary on various preoccupations of Egyptian and Mesopotamian thought and development of those things, uh, although, of course, with the, the Empire of Alexander, and the little ice age, the kind of slight collapse in the early centuries CE. You know, you have the collapse of the Han Dynasty as well. And you have the, the rise of millenarian thought even in China at that time too. You know, there's a kind of global um, band of what? A, a dialectical shift of a certain kind, I would say, actually. Uh, including... Um, what gives birth to Buddhism, and well, it's, and it's slightly later the fall of the Gupta dynasty that leads into Tantric Buddhism and gives birth to the forms of Buddhism that mainly go into China and Japan. But in a certain sense, leaving that aside, sort of originally the, this Western tradition, Mesopotamia and Egypt, is about a kind of dialectic of the ruler and the policeman, uh, the policeman becomes, is a punisher, but he's also like the embodiment of cosmic evil. And this f figure of cosmic evil takes on this important role, right? In, in really all forms of this, uh, you know, maybe Islam is, is one that doesn't necessarily, you know, Islam approaches sort of monism maybe, but that's, you know, that's tricky. In any case, this episode is something that you're definitely going to want to turn into to expand, to upgrade your analysis of non-Western systems of thought. This time we're going to be talking, of course, about Hinduism, um, particularly Brahmanism, right? There's many things within Hinduism. Hinduism is a big um, grab bag, just as India is a big, um, it's a big construct, right, which is drawn together for the benefit of a certain colonial comprador bourgeoisie, and uh, it's bringing together quite violently a lot of different nations within it. 
and a lot of different groups that have different cultures, different religions, many Muslims, many people of uh, many people who focus on different kinds, different aspects of Hinduism too. But the the type of Hinduism that Ajit is critiquing here is known as Brahmanism, right? And it's the it focuses on among the three major practices within Hinduism, which would be meditation, which is jnana, worship, which is bhakti, and salvation by practice. And this is always by a noble aristocratic subject, right? That's known as karma yoga, right? So there's a different bhakti yoga, jnana yoga, karma yoga. Yoga means practice as opposed to dharma, Dharma, well, it can mean, so it can mean duty karma as well in this context. A lot of us might be more familiar with the use of these terms as it occurs in Buddhism, uh, which is a little bit different, but at the same time, Buddhism is in this dialectical relationship with Hinduism and the type of late Gupta uh, Buddhism that spreads into East Asia. By the time it gets to Japan, you know, I'm reading this, and of course, a major aspect of my interest here is going to be how does this fit together with Japan, right? And it actually, like, fits very well. There are all these types of Buddhism in Japan that correspond to these these three types, right? There's maybe four basic types in Japan, right? You have the Zen, which is about meditation, mainly. Uh, you have uh, Lotus Sutra-focused Lotus Sutra uh, schools, which are about uh, pantheism, kind of maybe animism, so that could be a kind of bhakti. That's one kind of bhakti. That would be one kind of worship-centered spirituality. And then you have uh, Shingon and Tendai, which are esoteric, so-called, that take just the ritual elements of the uh, tantric stuff, right? Um, s- chanting dharani and mantra, that's kind of spells, reciting uh you know, or doing trance sort of meditation too, maybe. So there's a meditative aspect there, but then also it can be about uh, performing rituals of burning sesame seeds and clicking uh, wooden uh, clickers and, you know, making, uh, doing rituals, smells and bells and stuff to increase, accumulate uh, karmic points, sort of uh, in a very Catholic sort of way, I would say. All right, so is this bhakti? Maybe this is kind of bhakti more. Um, maybe it's more worship-oriented, right? But ac- actually, then, one of the main attractions of these esoteric schools when they're first brought to Japan is these kanjo-sai, or an- anointing or uh, what, initiation of the emperor as a chakravartin, or a, da- a king who turns the wheel of the dharma, a wheel-turning king. Uh, so that would be a reference again to this kind of idea of noble action, action by the noble to to turn the wheel of the dharma, right? Keep the um, to perform one's varna dharma, or it would be the the term from the Bhagavad Gita. Varna is caste, so to perform your caste duty, and definitely as a member of the noble class. I I don't know about esoteric Japanese Buddhism saying anything to the lower castes, right? The lower classes. Uh, And they do become something very much like castes. Certain anthropologists do talk about various medieval outcast classes as as, uh, untouchable castes. 
societal distinctions do ossify to that degree by the end of the early modern Edo period, right? And that's still kind of with us today in interesting ways, right? We have things like buraku um, discrimination, the buraku so-called. The more common term in Japanese would be etahinin, but those are extremely like, you know, discriminatory words. And so people don't usually say that out loud. Hisabetsu buraku mean is the preferred nomenclature, right? Uh, but, oh, one more type of Japanese Buddhism, while I'm at it, would be the Pure Land, basically, right? And that is based on faith. That, again, you know, would be bhakti. That would be worship-based. Uh, faith in the vicarious salvation of uh, Amida, or Amitabha in Sanskrit, right? Who has done austerities for many eons in some other world to uh, make up for us. And then if you have faith in him and, and chant just basically his name, right, you can then be reborn in his pure land where you kind of will automatically achieve Buddhist enlightenment, kind of like heaven, kind of different in some ways. But yeah, so that, that would, that's a quick sketch of Japanese Buddhism uh, to compare because that's a big interest of mine. And I have a kind of thesis here that I'm working towards, which it, I'll say right now, I think, I suspect that in the Japanese Buddhist scene, there isn't anything that really corresponds to this karma yoga, this um, action by the ruler, right? And uh, that's going to be really, uh, that's part of why D.T. Suzuki invents what he invents. I would connect it to that, actually. Like Zen as modern Zen, right? As distinct from pre-modern Zen, which was like the most Chinese type, and it was actually very, very focused on a kind of ancestor worship, right? There's a lot of worship, actually, in Zen, right? It isn't just meditation. Uh, it's about worship of ancestors and, and your lineage and your, pre your predecessors and, and also kind of liturgy of doing these koan, yeah? So... Uh, it's very complicated originally, but then it, it's brought back to this kind of Bhagavad Gita thing, which modern capitalist class is super interested in. They love the Bhagavad Gita. They fucking love it. That's why I'm taking this up, right? So that's kind of, that's a little preview of my the thesis that I'm kind of driving at, okay? I hope to, I'll flesh it out later. So Ajit is taking up and arguing against in the classical Indian tradition of debate this very representative text Gita Rahasya which was very influential on Indian independence right national liberation movements of conservative types and also of liberal types like Gandhi Gandhi was an extreme caste discriminator uh, he supported caste discrimination very much in the midst of his kind of liberal independence uh, rhetoric right which goes, the, the main sort of name for this ideology in the Gita Rahasya is Advaita, which means non-dualism, non-dual, you know, not, not two, right? Uh, which you remember that from the DT Suzuki material that we looked at. We saw that he really introduces non-dualism into the Japanese Buddhist tr tradition in a way that it was not as prominent before. And this is something that's parallel here, Right. The karma uh, yoga, carrying out your, your caste destiny, is not the only way to salvation at all that is talked about in the Bhagavad Gita. There's a lot about worship and there's a lot about meditation. 
Uh, even if caste is primary, you know, this is still a, I mean, it's still a, a feudal, it's a text from a feudal society, um, as Ajit will also point out. But uh, yeah, so let's go through, let's go through Ajit's work a little bit. I'm going to, I'm going to, so Advaita is at present the dominant school of idealism confronting materialism in our context. And this work of Tilak, right, is a passionate plea for karma yoga, the path of action. The whole purpose guiding his work is the ambition to establish karma yoga in opposition to janana yoga, the path of contemplation, and bhakti yoga, the path of worship. So, yeah, there's lots of different kinds of Hinduism, actually, beside that, right? Uh, that would include Narayana Guru, who vehemently rejected varna and caste divisions. He refused to accord any utility to them. And then, of course, you have Tilak and Gandhi himself, who justified Varna. And they were staunchly Advaiti, so uh, non-dualists, staunch non-dualists. So, and there's another uh, essay in this volume that I'm not, I'm mostly drawing here on a critique of Brahmanist ethics, this essay, which you can also find on Medium. You can follow Ajit on Medium and see all kinds of very small, little timely essays as well. But uh, this volume has a lot of kind of more on a philosophical level, right? So I'm taking this up here. So unflinching adherence to one's karma or duty lies at the core of Tilak's exegesis. He insists that this is the central message of the Gita. In order to establish this, he takes up a detailed refutation of other readings of the Gita, which argue that its teaching is nivritipar, uh, the withdrawal from karma, or bhakti, worship of God, as the path to moksha, liberation. He, Tilak, the author of uh, the Gita Rahasya, rejects these other two interpretations, right? The moksha is the liberation of the atma, the soul, from jani mriti, the endless cycle of birth and death. Uh, so we have this in Buddhism as well. You know, and even though Buddhism originates in a kind of critique of Brahmanism, uh, right, and its antecedents, I think, uh, the rule of noble classes on the part of a merchant class, on the part of a merchant class that is arising in India, China, Persia, in the, the first millennium BCE. A good, so we found like, the, the Bodhi tree archaeologically preserved that the Buddha supposedly uh, achieved enlightenment under, and that tree at least definitely was preserved. There was a, a tree preserved, and it does seem to date to about 5th century BCE. So uh, that does seem to be a good date uh, for the, the arising of Buddhism. But it, it, the sponsors there are a merchant class, right? It's not a feudal nobility that supports that, the feudal nobility. And so the, the Buddhist critique, right, uh, is is there. But very quickly, Buddhism takes on these—it becomes its opposite— it becomes the thing that it was critiquing, right? And this happens again and again in human thought. Uh, and we got to plan for it. We got to look out for that. So this is one of the things that we, want, we can really use. We can really use this, okay? So these same ideas, right? Um, the Atma, the soul, you know, although, of course, Buddhism would deny that, you know, um, Anatman, yeah, not, no self, no soul. You don't have a soul. You don't have a self, right? That is because it's part of this denial of the caste order and the caste duty and all of this, yeah. Um, but yeah, in this in this Brahmanism, uh, liberation of the Atma from the endless cycle of birth and death comes through 
carrying out your caste duty. And we've seen before that by the time Buddhism finds its way to Japan, you can see in the uh, Buddhist folktales like the um, Setsuwa in the Nihon Ryoiki, we have revisionist Buddhism where it's all about uh, you know, obey that. But some sometimes, you know, there's still quite a lot of like, uh, if you know about karma and you know and you say the prayers and you do the and you and you abstain from eating meat, you can get away, get out of paying your taxes, or you can get extra rice uh, doles, you know, from the the dole man, uh, right? So there's still a promise of like getting around and a promise of a critique there too. I think that element is is always going to be there. Um, to help you get ahead in, in class society. That'll, any, any religion that has uh, ac- accommodated to its environment for a good amount of time is going to take on all these various uh, features, I think. Although, as we saw with the very right-wing post-war labor politics being promoted in the Catholic setting in the short story in last episode, right? Uh, there's always going to be real limits to the kind of liberation that is promised to the little guy in a religious system where, you know, it's not the little guy that's paying the big bucks in the in the donations, is it? But so uh, Tilak contrasts karma yoga to these views, uh, you know, bhakti and jnana. Uh, it calls for continuing to do one's karma-ordained duties given by one's varna or caste, even after attaining jnana, inner realization, maybe that is okay as like a step toward becoming a karma yogin, right? But uh, jnana is the gaining of awareness of the unity of one's atma with the para-brahma, the formless, qualityless, eternal, absolute, right? The all, there's going to be a lot about that in the Bhagavad Gita, which I will read an extended cut from. The parabrahma lies beyond maya, illusion, beyond the illusory sensuous universe. That's the visible universe and so on. Uh, and so this is, this is why Brahmanists, which naturally this kind of Brahmanism is a major support of today, uh, the fascism of Modi, right, who's massacring Muslims and all kinds of other minorities, uh, national minorities as well, in the name of his Hindutva Hindu-centered ideology, yeah, which is very class-based, right? It's about class power. You know, it puts on masks of nation. It puts on masks of, and and here we'll see in the classical text, a mask of uh, philosophical nihilism or or monism, absolute monism, right? There's another essay in this volume. I think I was getting around to saying there's another essay, The Limits of Absolute Monism, which I actually really recommend as well. That's even heavier on the philosophical stuff. And I'll quote from it in a minute, just a little bit, but read that too if you're at all interested in this. Um, so normally, karma binds one to the cycle of Jani Mriti. Hence, it may seem to be an obstacle for gaining jnana. And again, that's enlightenment achieved through meditation. Tilak argues that this won't happen if one does karma with a nishkama, unattached or disinterested outlook. So nishkama karma. Nishkama, unattached, disinterested. And so Tilak is really interested in proposing this as a guide of conduct for the lower classes as well, right? Accept your fate as a worker, accept your fate as a peasant, right? This kind of thing. So that is doing karma with the attitude of remaining free of desire for or attachment to its outcome. In the Bhagavad Gita, this would be 
Arjuna, the kind of main human character, and he's talking. It's a dialogue between Arjuna and Krishna, who is his uh, god. Krishna is an avatar of the god Vishnu. Yeah, he's mainly sort of... So there's about to be a big battle on the plains of Kurukshetra, and Arjuna sees all of his former teachers and all of his cousins and his family in front of him, and he has to fight now a war over some land. There's a land dispute among two branches of a family, basically. And uh, Arjuna's branch is has been very, very unjustly sort of cut out of the inheritance of land. And Arjuna is about to fight to get his just desserts. And his cause is just. He's very, very just. Uh, but he just doesn't want to uh, shed blood of his relatives. And Krishna, in this dialogue, is all telling him reasons why you you should fight, and it's okay, and you have to do your caste duty as a noble, right, and kill these people. So Tilak, who's this Tilak guy? He was a leading member of what was known as the political wing of the Indian National Congress in its pre-Gandhi period. This wing consisted, uh, it insisted on focusing the anti-colonial struggle on gaining the right to self-rule, or dominion status, within the British Empire. Tilak and his colleagues made strident criticisms of the British rule and advocated activism. Additionally, he was a prominent member of the Orthodox Savarna grouping that tried its best to stop social reforms or at least delay them. Right, so social reforms that would benefit the people at the bottom, um, like the Adivasi castes, right? Tilak's advocacy of karma yoga, that is uh, rule by carrying out your noble destiny, was informed by these views. It was marshaled to substantiate them. The Gita Rahasya was thus intended to fulfill a political ideological role, even while it stayed within the frame of a theological philosophical treatise. So I think this is as good a time as any to launch into a little reading from the Bhagavad Gita itself to get a sense of what it is. So the, the two armies are the Pandavas, that's Arjuna's side, he and his four brothers, maybe. There's five brothers. Uh, they share a wife. Uh, she's, well, it, you know, it's a, it's a common thing, polyandry uh, at this time in India. So one wife who has five husbands under her. And uh, these guys are fighting for the, their just cause for their inheritance against the Kauravas. And the story is really told in an interesting way. And this happens a lot in, in different Indian epic poems where maybe one magical crow will be talking to another crow and telling them the, the story of the whole thing. And there's, there's a, usually a frame narrative where one person is telling the story to another person. I think in this case of the Bhagavad Gita, um, here, here too we might actually think about uh, perhaps influence on Tolkien and Lord of the Rings. But uh, there's a king... So I think the father of the Kauravas, the kind of bad guys, is looking into a magic stone and seeing the action. Um, or no, no, he's asking uh, Sanjaya to tell him the, the story. And Sanjaya is, has celestial vision, so he, he can omnisciently observe everything that's happening on the battlefield. And he is telling uh, this king, Dhritarashtra, who is blind himself. He's blind, and he cannot see. Uh, Sanjaya has supervision and Sanjaya is telling Dhritarashtra this entire story. That's the frame narrative here. 
Okay, so that might become important at sometimes. I'm using the Norton Anthology of World Literature version, which has stripped away a lot of the honorifics and stripped away a lot of the patronymics. There's a lot of clan structure language, which is really interesting for us, and I, I would recommend. I will put the entire, a full translation of the full text, which is in the Penguin, the Indian Penguin translation into English, which takes up a whole uh, shelf of the Mahabharata. So the, the Bhagavad Gita is only one little part of the Mahabharata, which became a classic again in the modern period, right? You know, in response to certain demands and certain needs from elites in the modern period, both in India and in, I think, the British networks, right? I think this is being appropriated for certain purposes. And again, I would suggest that DT Suzuki is looking at this kind of thing. Right, a lot of uh, Paul Karus's other friends were people like the Sinhalese nationalist Dharmapala, who is responsible for uh, reviving a lot of a lot of sort of like quote unquote original Buddhism, original Buddhist teachings, which you know are are similar to the the Bhagavad Gita here, yeah, uh, and particularly this this modern interpretation of the Bhagavad Gita, represented by this guy Tilak that Ajit is arguing against, okay? So here, let's get in. You know, this is going to be stripped of a lot of the patronymics and a lot of the florid language and a lot of the narrative framing and stuff. So just keep that in mind. If you want to read the whole thing, I will put that Penguin, Indian Penguin translation up on the Discord. And if you have not already done so, the, uh, please join the Kingless Generation by going to patreon.com slash irregnata, that's unruled in Latin, feminine, singular, I-R-R-E-G-N-A-T-A, irregnata, uh, or just search for the kingless generation. And for a low, low price, uh, you can join and you get access to that Discord. You get access to half of the catalog, which is uh, premium. So, uh, and I'll have those uh, that reading up there. You can read the whole thing. Then you'll really understand the whole classic itself. Homem me mal brasileiro, tivesse seu dinheiro, tivesse seu dinheiro. Homem me mal brasileiro, tivesse seu dinheiro, tivesse seu dinheiro. Tivesse seu dinheiro, iria à Bahia, iria a Belém, Belém do Pará. Iria em visita ao São Salvador, iria a Brasília, assim não vou lá. Tivesse seu dinheiro, iria soltar, beber poesia até não fragar. Depois ficaria ouvindo Catulo, chorando poemas ao som do luar. Homem meu mal brasileiro, tivesse seu dinheiro, tivesse seu dinheiro. Homem meu mal brasileiro, tivesse seu dinheiro. So, monkey-bannered Arjuna, seeing his foes drawn up for war, raised his bow, that son of Pandu, as the weapons began to clash. Then he said these words to Krishna, Lord of the earth, unshaken one, bring my chariot to a halt between the two adverse armies, so I may see these men arrayed here for the battle they desire, whom I am soon to undertake a warrior's delight in fighting. I see those who have assembled, the warriors prepared to fight, eager to perform in battle for Dhritarashtra's evil son. So again, those, they're trying to monopolize a bunch of land in an inheritance dispute. Uh, this is 
You know, it's a really interesting thing in, in world history to look at whether people have uh, primogeniture or whether they have sons kind of fight it out to determine who's going to be the heir. A whole big part of the kind of structure of European colonialism has to do with them practicing primogeniture. So the eldest son immediately inherits everything, and then all the other sons can just go off and be ne'er-do-wells and chancers and colonial sort of magicians all over the world, right? Uh, that's not the case with, um, by contrast, the kind of conate model of, of governor, governance, right? The conate model, every generation kind of fights it out. And there's a kind of meritocracy to that, right? Like the um, authority of the absolute ruler under a uh, conate and its, its successor systems, which would include even... Ming Dynasty China, you know, even the Yuan Dynasty is the Mongol Dynasty, but the dynasty after that is indelibly marked by the conventions of Khanate rule by which, you know, this comes from, the authority comes from being a world conqueror. And so having each generation fight it out among the sons to determine succession actually gives each generation a new, fresh claim on being a world conqueror. So the authority can continue. And this, this is one of many, many things that Europe picks up from the non-West. Uh, also, Chinese methods of bureaucracy. We talk a, a lot about uh, enlightenment values of freedom and equality being taken from various indigenous American societies. Many things are taken. Uh, but the kind of absolute monarchy that you see in France, uh, and before that, of course, you have Philip II of Spain and the Habsburgs. The Habsburg uh, absolute monarchs also, that's a, that's a Mongolian kind of thing. That's a, that's a Khanate uh, model that they're taking over. So when Arjuna had spoken so to Krishna, O Bharata, he having brought their chariot to a halt between the armies, in the face of Bhishma, Drona, and the other lords of the earth, said, Behold, O son of Prita, how these Kurus have assembled. And there, he, so he's talking to Krishna. Right. And there the son of Prita saw rows of grandfathers and grandsons, sons and fathers, uncles, in-laws, teachers, brothers and companions, all relatives and friends of his in both of the assembled armies. And seeing them arrayed for war, Arjuna, son of Kunti, felt for them a great compassion as well as great despair and said, O Krishna, now that I have seen my relatives so keen for war, I am unstrung. My limbs collapse beneath me, and my mouth is dry. There is a trembling in my body, and my hair rises bristling. Gandiva, my immortal bow, drops from my hand, and my skin burns. I cannot stand upon my feet. My mind rambles in confusion. All inauspicious are the signs that I see, O handsome-haired one, Krishna. I foresee no good resulting from slaughtering my kin in war. I have no wish for victory, nor for kingship and its pleasures. O Krishna, what good is kingship? What good even life and pleasure? Those for whose sake we desire kingship, pleasures, and enjoyments are now drawn up in battle lines, their lives and riches now abandoned. Fathers, grandfathers, sons, grandsons, my mother's brothers, and the men who taught me in my youth, brothers and fathers-in-law, kinsmen all. So indeed, the possibility is raised here of you could just not be a 
nobleman. You could not be a class exploiter, uh, actually. Well, not quite. I mean, it doesn't quite go that far, but it suggests that possibility, right? Because the entire conflict between the Pandavas and the Karavas is that the Karavas don't want to give some land. Now, having that land means actually having an exploitative relationship to the peasants on that land, forcing them to produce grain and so on, right? It doesn't just mean owning land as like a, a hunter-gatherer, right? That's not the same thing as like, you know, land back, uh, right? Indigenous Americans wanting their land back. But so, his, his conundrum continues. Though they are prepared to slay us, I do not wish to murder them, not even to rule the three worlds. How much less one earthly kingdom. What joy for us in murdering Dhritarashtra's sons, O Krishna? For if we killed these murderers, evil like theirs would cling to us. A very kind of liberal argument, right? Very often uh, anyone who violently resists someone who has for a long time maybe even been doing massive systemic violence against them, uh, well, that makes them just as bad now, doesn't it? And oh, shouldn't we just, you know, hand-wringing, this would be, the same logic could be used for liberal hand-wringing. I don't know if that's quite what Arjuna is doing here, right? But that's his objection. That's his objection. Evil like theirs would cling to us. So we cannot in justice slay our kinsmen, Dhritarashtra's sons, for having killed our people, how could we be pleased, O Madhava, Krishna? Even if they, mastered by greed, are blind to the consequences of the family's destruction, of friendships lost to treachery, how are we not to comprehend that we must turn back from evil? The wrong done by this destruction is evident, O shaker of men. For with the family destroyed, its eternal laws must perish. And when they perish, lawlessness overwhelms the whole family. Ah, the noble family. Hey, so that is a vehicle of passing down property. We're going to undermine the structure of the family itself if we have this intra-ruling class uh, struggle, basically. That's what's actually being lamented here. Whelmed by lawlessness, the women of the family are corrupted. From corrupted women comes the intermingling of classes. Oh no, you're going to have class mingling. See, uh, caste ideology, also very, very important here, right? It isn't just some kind of uh, hippy-dippy. Well, it might be actually quite faithful to uh, hippy ideology in various ways, but... It's definitely not some nice, nice thing and, and fair-minded in every way. It's only about, uh, let's be nice to our fellow high members of high castes, yeah? Because the real thing, danger there is intermingling of classes. Such intermingling sends to hell the family and its destroyers. And its destroyers. So there's a, you know, here too is the threat. If you overthrow the ruling class, uh, it's gonna, everyone's going to die somehow. You know, the peasants, well, there would be the fiction that sort of in some way the peasants who uh, and the workers and the pr whatever kind of producers, the actual producers, are somehow dependent on the parasitic ruling class that is only at most organizing production. But no, yeah, this will send to hell the family and its destroyers. Their ancestors fall then. Deprived of rice and water offerings. Okay, so ancestor worship is an important part of this construct. That's always interesting to think about. You have the idea of sort of uh, debt to your parents gets projected and moved back, and, and somehow this projection leads to the creation of 
maybe the ideas of gods or maybe ideas of guilt, uh, sin, right, that would, that would stay in a kind of supernatural way based on all these great sort of many, many debts to many generations of parents. That would be one theory. Those who destroy the family, who institute class mingling, cause the laws of the family and laws of caste to be abolished. Men whose familial laws have been obliterated, O Krishna, are damned to dwell eternally in hell, as we have often heard. It grieves me that as we intend to murder our relatives, in our greed for pleasures, kingdoms, we are fixed on doing evil. So again, you could just stop being a fucking aristocrat, but all right. If the sons of Dhritarashtra, armed as they are, should murder me weaponless and unresisting, I would know greater happiness. Okay, this is Gandhi style right here. Oh, I'm just going gonna, gonna to be nonviolent. And if Arjuna was to do that, he would be doing it, uh, as we just saw, partly in order to defend class rule. Because that's what he really hates about the idea of giving up on this land, because class rule then would be undermined. And the family the noble family. And having spoken, Arjuna collapsed into his chariot, his bow and arrows clattering, and his mind overcome with grief. And we skip to chapter 2 a little bit, and the Lord, that would be Krishna, said, Although you seem to speak wisely, you have mourned those not to be mourned. The wise do not grieve for those gone, or for those who are not yet gone. There was no time when I was not nor you, nor these lords around us. And there will never be a time henceforth when we shall not exist. I think what he's really saying is there will never be a time when we shall not have existed. There was a time when we existed. We might die, but we did exist, right? And you can think, we're just thinking of time as like the timeline laid out before us, like a, like a book or like a video uh, scrubber uh, control, yeah? And indeed, you know, this is a, that's a good perspective sometimes, right? Uh, we today, we're living at maybe the end of the human species, certainly the end of some kind of big civilization, some kind of era, right? So nothing is going to last, and anything that is going to last, we have to actually make it last, make it count. We only have so much time, we only have so much energy in our lives. And that limit actually gives us a whole lot of meaning. What are we going to do? How are we going to make it count? What values? What are the values that we're really going to stand up for and fight for? That's an extremely good thing to think about. So there is no time when I was not, nor you, nor these lords around us, and henceforth will never be a time henceforth when we shall not exist. The embodied one passes through childhood, youth, and then old age, then attains another body. In this, the wise are undeceived. So this is the doctrine of reincarnation. Um, transmigration of the soul, right? Um, which may have some uh, reality, right? In terms of, you know, you you can think of it on a quasi sort of scientific level. Certainly the matter that our bodies are composed of uh, may decompose. All the ideas, the thoughts that I think can be taken over by other people. There's a lot of things you can think. Maybe you believe in the immortality of the soul. I don't know. But uh, there's a lot of people who don't. And, uh, there's plenty of reason for that too. Uh, either way, you know, there there are claims, there are reasons to. Um, I would definitely commend people who have not yet really experienced uh, or tried to inhabit a kind of um, non-Western, non-Abrahamic, I would say, non-Abrahamic, non-monotheistic, um, non-Platonic 
right? Not believing in, uh, for example, the, the immortal soul, quite, right? Um, many, many civilizations have had uh, deep traditions of moral thought and action and actually built uh, really wonderful civilizations without recourse to any such idea. Uh, that would be something about, for me, about Abrahamism is that it arises uh, out of very patriarchal and very uh, monarchist, monarchist societies, yeah? Whereas from a historical materialist perspective, a lot of the societies that we might find the greatest models in some senses, right? In various indigenous societies, both, you know, if, if there is such a thing as a state of nature, but also hard-won, hard-fought, actually existing fully, full communism for their time and place, like you have with the successor state, the successor civilization to like the Cahokia kingdom in the Ohio River Valley that left behind all these big mounds, right? Those oral histories of indigenous Americans like the um, Iroquois, they said there used to be a very strict class society, but we overthrew it and we created something better. So not a state of nature, but a state of full communism that people actually fought and, and won. Well, you look at th something like that, real strong senses of individual, you know, this, you know, individualism is not such a huge feature of that. So I really get that, you know. Your thought, uh, I think there's a lot to the idea that you are the, the sum of your relationships with other people and, you know, something that you can, you just have inside your own head and you don't share it is of limited value. It's of limited value. That should make me want to sit down and do the podcast more often, I think. <laughs> Although I have to, I have to synthesize my own thoughts to the right degree before I really feel right about it too. So I'm going to not blame myself either my deepest thanks by the way to all my subscribers on patreon.com you are inspiring wonderful and thank you so much for being a member of the kingless generation but that doctrine of transmigration how is that working right here yeah contacts with matter by which we feel heat and cold pleasure and pain are transitory come and go these you must manage to endure such contacts do not agitate a wise man, O bull among men, to whom pleasure and pain are one. He is fit for immortality. Oh, so there is immortality. This is a little contradictory, yeah? I don't know. I think Buddhism would probably just not... A real faithful kind of um, Buddhism that would be really committed to calling into question these structures would, uh, would say, well, there's no immortality either. So, And that should, that should motivate you to a deeper kind of ethical commitment. Again, because there is only so much time. I think that limit is really important. It's really good. I mean, this would this would be compatible with Stoic thought as well. So Krishna continues, not non-being cannot come to be, nor can what is come to be not. I not be. The certainty of these sayings is known by seers of the truth. Know it as indestructible, that by which all is pervaded. No one may cause the destruction of the imperishable one. Okay, here we get the idea of like kind of the world soul. Um, this is a kind of pantheism. So everything is one. Everything is one big thing anyway. 
Uh, and the point is going to be, I think, uh, therefore, killing any one person, destroying any one thing. I mean, that was only one part of the same great big one that is imperishable. So therefore, nothing changed. Therefore, it's all just, you know, rounding error. You know, it doesn't count. Mm, I don't know about that one. Bodies of the embodied one, eternal, boundless, all enduring, all are said to die. The one cannot. Therefore, take arms, O Bharata. This man believes one may kill. That man believes it may be killed. Both of them lack understanding. It can neither kill nor be killed. And that is the one, the world soul, can neither kill nor be killed. It is not born, nor is it ever mortal, and having been, it will not pass from existence. Ancient, unborn, eternally existing, it does not die when the body perishes. Okay, I mean, we all belong to one great big uh, biosphere, and you can look at it in that, uh, from that point of view. I would take that as a comfort, again, as facing something like the extinction of the species or the, the end of my own civilization, the end of my own life. I would feel, hey, I can pass on my energy. I received all kinds of things from my ancestors and from all my teachers and people who have helped me and all the plants and animals that have helped me and the whole ecosystem biosphere that I live with. And I return my energy to it. I can be one with it again in a certain sense. That's, that's, that's good, I think. Um, but to use that to justify violence, right? To justify, and, you know, you can dress it, that violence up in languages of duty and justice, but of course, you know, that's all only within the framework of class rule. As we will see, Ajit will, will bring our attention to this very precisely, and he'll say it better than I could. So how can a man who knows the one to be eternal, both unborn and without end, murder or cause another to? Whom does he kill? Someone who has abandoned worn-out garments, sets out to clothe himself in brand-new raiment. Just so, when it has cast off worn-out bodies, the embodied one will encounter others. This may not be pierced by weapons, nor can this be consumed by flames. Flowing waters cannot drench this, nor blowing winds desiccate this. Not to be pierced, not to be burned, neither drenched nor desiccated, eternal, all-pervading, firm, unmoving, everlasting this. This has been called unmanifest, unthinkable, and unchanging. Therefore, because you know this now, you should not lament, Arjuna. But even if you think that this is born and dies time after time, forever, O great warrior, not even then should you mourn this. Death is assured to all those born, and birth is assured to all the dead. You should not mourn what is merely inevitable consequence. Beginnings are unmanifest, but manifest the middle state, and ends unmanifest again. So what is your complaint about? Oh, it's all a cycle, it's all, right? Um... Well, okay, it's all a cycle, but then that doesn't that mean also that we can create whatever meaning? I mean, you you must create meaning, otherwise you just... Well, I mean, you can have the same attitude on kind of the theist side, or maybe the Abrahamist side, we can say, uh, if you just sit back and sort of say, oh, the whole script is all written, God's providence is already worked out, I'm already saved, for example, the doctrine of predestination would really bring you here very easily if you put too much stock in that. Um, I'm saved, therefore everything I do is fine. Uh, you know, I can be, I can even be like very horribly nasty and, and uh, God has just chosen me as a vessel of honor, you know, and, and 
how can I help it if I have to go smashing all these other vessels of dishonor all through my life, right? You get, you end up in a very similar place, right? Uh, but on the other hand, uh, when you are, uh, there's no structure, there's no, everything is a cycle, there's no, um, if you have non-dual thought, which I do think is, it's not always skillful to focus on non-duality, but one skillful way to focus on it would be to say, oh, there is no, you know, there isn't an imposed good and evil that some cop is going to come and uh, establish for you. And the, the angels aren't keeping score of this and that, right? Uh, you have to go out there and make your own meaning, make your own uh, interpretation of things in every moment. Uh, and that's how you actually live ethically. That's how you actually live ethically. I mean, that would be a very active, very positive, I think, assertive way to approach this. But, of course, this is mostly right here in the Bhagavad Gita. We're mainly talking about why is it okay to kill people uh, in order to protect class rule. Well, that's not that's not that, right? So, uh, you should not lament Arjuna. Um, yeah, all is inevitable consequence. Beginnings are unmanifest, but manifest the middle state, and it ends unmanifest again. So, unmanifest, manifest, unmanifest. So, what is your complaint about? Somebody looks upon this as a marvel, and likewise, someone tells about this marvel, and yet another hears about this marvel. But even having heard it, no one knows it. The one cannot ever perish in a body it inhabits. The one, the world soul, right? O descendant of Bharata, and so no being should be mourned. Nor should you tremble to perceive your duty as a warrior. For him, there is nothing better than a battle that is righteous. And if by chance they will have gained the wide open gate of heaven, O son of Prita, Warriors rejoice in fighting such as that. If you turn from righteous warfare, your behavior will be evil, for you will have abandoned both your duty and your honored name. People will speak of your disgrace forever, and an honored man who falls from honor into shame suffers a fate much worse than death. Your concern should be with action, never with an action's fruits. Your concern should be, and this is characteristic, this is a very important line, uh, your concern should be with action, never with an action's fruits. And this too is what is recommended by Tilak, right? You, uh, every class, every varna that you belong to, you just un disinterestedly do your uh, karma, right? Your varna, you carry out your varna dharma. Uh, disinterestedly, you don't care if it leads to anything good for you or for anyone else for that matter. Um, you just act out and, you know, there is a great truth here. You know, this is, a, there is a great truth here. Just being yourself is a wonderful thing, but you've got to be yourself. You don't, you know, it's not being a cast to, you're relying on that, that cast then to give you your script that's pre-written and the ending is decided and right. Well, this can be comforting for, to some people in some ways, but and on the other hand, I am a Leninist, and I do believe in seizing power in the name of the working class and as the working class, acting as the working class, right? But in, in order to get there and in order to use that provisional means skillfully and really see us through to the end, we can't lose sight of the end, which is uh, classless society, yeah. And the people who have lived in classless societies throughout the ages... Not only the vast majority of free, happy humanity over the 200,000 years that human beings have existed, as opposed to the mere 6,000 years at most of class rule, uh, 
as we know it in our current cycle, uh, the vast majority of human beings have not had the script written for them in that way. And that's what we're actually naturally used to. I, I think that you can say, you know, there's a, it's provisional. But uh, right to the extent that there is a human nature, uh, it is free. It is free. And, and in that sense, and taking responsibility for our own actions. We act because we want to accomplish things. We only have so much time. Everything is cyclical. Whatever we accomplish, it's only going to be for us. It's only going to be for our generation, for the people around us. But let's make it a kingless generation. Let's make it a kingless generation. Let's make it the best generation anyway that we can, we can make it. Uh, and well, this is an important feature of any given ethics, though, right? When we analyze different ethical systems, like we've talked about Confucianism being very much an ethics of sincerity. Are you sincere with respect to these basic social relationships, like to your father, to your ruler, elder brother, and so on? And of course, that is why like suicide is such a common feature of Confucian casuistry, such as you would see in a kabuki play. Or uh, some Chinese plays too. Uh, someone faces a dilemma where they cannot possibly satisfy a couple of different core relationships to which they must show sincerity. And so the only way you can show sincerity is by killing yourself. And that's why that's the solution, right? If it was an ethics of intention, like, you know, Jesuit style Catholic casuistry would be what is your intention and what what is your your information what are, you, are your best lights your best uh, information that you have about the situation what do you believe about this situation and then your intention what are you trying to do right and and then what is the result of the action all of these things would be taken into account and so that's why for example you know you have jews in your basement and the nazis knock on the door and they ask you do have Jews in your basement and you should say no because, yes, you're lying, but the right there's all this stuff. And we, we want to do that. We want to be able to analyze different kinds of ethics and how they are working in any given moment. That's part of close reading of all of these historical, these historical texts and also given moments that we find ourselves living in. And uh, the practice of ethics involves rolling with that, and and you gotta spar, you gotta fight, and you gotta play, and you gotta work out your karma for sure. I just don't know about caste karma. Certainly not in service of the ruling class. Yeah, I mean caste. If you are be if you're the working class, if you're working out the karma of the working class as a historical subject, well, now now you're really talking. And as your your fate, your, your life, becoming yourself. That would be the good way to think about that sort of thing, I think. So, um, yeah, action. Uh, action, by the way, in this text, yoga is an action, right? Practice. Pra we could call, talk about praxis, right? Use the Greek word. Um, the reason why yoga, right? Like when you do yoga poses and you do yoga exercises, that is a practice that you do with your body. Uh, but of course, here the word yoga is being used in a broader sense. Your concern should be with action, never with an action's fruits. These should never motivate you, nor attachment to inaction. So don't don't be ina no inaction. That would be uh, in conflict with Taoism, certainly, right? The the idea of wu wei, wu wei non action, is a very important Taoist idea. 
of sort of acting by not acting, not taking a deliberate sort of action, right? Uh, this would not be, right? This is about acting. You act, kill the people, right? Kill these uh, friends and family members of yours because it is your caste duty to do so. Okay, that's what's being said. Established in this practice, acts, act without attachment, Arjuna, unmoved by failure or success. Equanimity is yoga. Action is far inferior to the practice of higher mind. Seek refuge there, for pitiful are those moved by fruit of action. Okay, maybe there's something to that, you know, like if you... Zayami, the, the theorist of the no theater, and the, he's a dramatist, right? He, he wrote a lot of plays, too. He, he talks, too, about, like, doing, uh, imitating partic- your teacher's particular gestures is not the thing to do. You want to get into the sort of heart of what. Like, get to the thing that is inspiring your teacher to do the particular gestures first. Um, although, I mean, it all goes in hand in hand, right? Like, um, you have to just practice the waza first. From waza comes, comes hana. I think he says at a certain point, the, the flower of dramatic interest, the, the goal in some ways for Zayami is, is the flower, right? And this comes from just practicing just plain old, you know, practice the moves, do the swing, do the baseball swing a hundred thousand times, and then something higher, something epiphenomenal, something beautiful, something very meaningful, right, will come on on top of that. So there's that aspect to it, but then on the other hand, he says things like you you know you don't imitate just the surface kind of action, right? You you actually need to get into the mindset and and access the the places that are causing the your model to actually make the choices that they're making. You have to become, you have to redo, right? Their work. You can't just um, it's it's maybe impossible to stand on the shoulders of giants when we're talking about intellectual accomplishment or we're talking about uh, ethical accomplishment, we have to actually redo the work every time in every generation. Maybe that's a great message that I would, it's a counter message that I'm maybe developing here in my intertext. I'm writing a whole other column next to this column, aren't I? Hmm. Sanabi iki ini keri hisakata no tsuki no okazura no hana aya asaku. So Action is far inferior to the practice of higher mind. Seek refuge there. For pitiful are those moved by fruit of action. Once dis- one disciplined by higher mind here casts off good and bad actions. Therefore be yoked to discipline. Discipline is skill in actions. Having left the fruit of action, the wise ones yoked to higher mind are freed from the bonds of rebirth and go where no corruption is. So this would be a promise of, of moksha, of uh, awakening, enlightenment. Um, Yeah, Hindu ideology has an idea of enlightenment as well, just like Buddhism does, right? Um, But here, notice it's coming from karma yoga, carrying out the action, duty. Carrying out duty to your caste uh, actually leads you to enlightenment. 
So when your higher mind has crossed over the thicket of delusion, you will become disenchanted with what is heard in the Vedas. So Krishna suggests here that the older ritualistic knowledge embodied in the Vedas is useless for the liberation of the individual self or soul from the bondage of karma. When unvexed by revelation, your higher mind is motionless and stands fixed in meditation, then you will attain discipline. Arjuna asked, Tell me, Krishna, how may I know the man steady in his wisdom who abides in meditation? How should that one sit, speak, and move? So there's a lot about meditation here, too, in the actual Bhagavad Gita, right? Tilak is going to reduce it very much to, to caste. And that's a characteristic of modern Brahmanism, which is, is very much alive. You'll see on, the, on my Twitter feed, I just uh, retweeted a set of screenshots of Brahmanist believers arguing heatedly about different characters in the Mahabharata, this epic poem that the Bhagavad Gita is a part of. And they passionately argue about it. They care about all these characters uh, at least as much as a liberal cares about a Marvel movie or Harry Potter or something, right? Um, that's not an accident, of course. I think uh, liberals are being encouraged to care about those things in precisely a spiritual way, precisely an, an, a hermeneutic, like a biblical exegetical way. And that's a certain kind of psyop. So the blessed Lord replied, Krishna, when he renounces all desires entering his mind, Arjuna, and his self rests within the self, capital S, this is a play on the word Atman, which means both the self and oneself. Uh, so like the soul versus, or just, you know, oneself. And this is the idea, but the, the Paramatman, the, the super soul, the one, your one soul can become one with the super soul by carrying out your caste destiny. But again, even if you carry out your caste destiny as a peasant or a, as a worker, it will be in the interest of the ruling class, not in the interest of the working class. Um, so then his wisdom is called steady, when his, his self rests within, within the capital S, self. Then his wisdom is called steady. He who is not agitated by suffering or by desires, freed from anger, fear, and passions, is called a sage of steady mind, who is wholly unimpassioned, not rejoicing in the pleasant, not rejecting the unpleasant, is established in his wisdom. And when this one wholly withdraws all his senses from their objects, as a tortoise draws in its limbs, his wisdom is well established. Okay. Well, this is about meditative practice and so on, right? Withdrawing, yeah, this can be, I mean, this is a in many, many religious cultures and, and forms of ethical practice. You need to take a minute, get uh, right with yourself, get right with your own, sort of recalibrate, right? Uh, yeah, this is important. Many of the, you have too many distractions from everyday life. You can be wrapped up in things that really aren't that important sometimes, yeah? So, sure. But again, uh, you know, here we have go murder people for the sake of class, for the sake of the ruling class in, in particular. Yeah. Uh, and also that sort of turtle shell uh, pose can be not about stabilizing your mind and enabling you, making you ready to be a good ethical actor, 
but it can be about dissociating. It can be about keeping you disconnected. It can keep be about keeping you uh, docile. So, I don't know. Chapter 3, Arjuna said, If you regard the intellect as superior to action, why urge me, O handsome-haired one, into action so appalling? By your equivocating speech, my mind is, as it were, confused. Tell me this one thing, and clearly, by what means may I reach the best? The blessed Lord said, As I have previously taught, there are two paths, O blameless one. There is the discipline of knowledge and the discipline of action. Not by not acting in this world does one become free from action, nor does one approach perfection by renunciation only. Not even for a moment does someone exist without acting. Even against one's will, one acts by the nature-born qualities. I mean, yeah, that's, that's true. Uh, there's no question of withdrawing. There's no question of just not acting. Yeah, that's, a, that's another good side to it. That's good to flesh out for sure renunciation only, right? Renunciation, negation. When you negate something, you are actually giving it a lot of space in your mind and actually forming your consciousness around it. It's like your mind is like clay, and the more that you mess with something, even to denounce it, even to negate it, the more you will, uh, your mental world will be created around that thing and actually reflect it quite a bit, right? That's why uh, higher levels of meditation in Buddhism are known, you know, the higher you get, there's the, the realm of consciousness, the realm of unconsciousness, the realm of neither consciousness nor unconsciousness, you know. So there's something to that. Uh, and yet you're always acting. There's no question of not acting, yeah? Even against one's will, one acts by the nature-born qualities. He who has restrained his senses but sits and summons back to mind the sense objects is said to be a self-deluding hypocrite. But he whose mind controls his senses, who undertakes the discipline of action by the action organs without attachment, is renowned. You must act as bid, for action is better than non-action is. Not even functions of the body could be sustained by non-action. That's interesting. You're always acting. Yeah, what about Mao talking in, on contradiction? The, the interior of a living being has contradictions, and that is... That's the substance of the life force of, a, of a, a living being as well. It moves by contradiction. Your muscles tense. Your, they, pu they pull against your bones. They put, you push and pull against the ground to walk around. It's all about contradiction. It's all about movement back and forth. Reality is dialectical. This world is bound by action, save for action which is sacrifice. Therefore, O son of Kunti, act without attachment to your deeds. When Prajapati brought forth life, he brought forth sacrifice as well, saying, By this you may produce. May this be your wish-fulfilling cow. This is the Vedic uh, religion, right? Sacrifice. So this part about sacrifice is really interesting. We might want to think about that. Nourish the gods with sacrifice, and they will nourish you as well. By nourishing each other, you will realize the highest good. You know, in this sense, you could very easily say, oh, well, a god here is just a kind of um, projection of a sovereign. An earthly king uh, comes and asks you for taxes every year, and they, they want to take grain from your fields. And so you invent, when you invent a god, in the same way, the god also wants grain, just like the king does. But here, of course, in this world, we definitely believe that that is an essential thing, and it's, it's an essential part, giving that grain 
to the king, first of all, and then also giving the grain to the god, right? Usually these things get reversed, just like the original reversal of labor versus, you know, the ruling class. Person, the, the yeoman farmer, the, the subsistence producer, who through whatever means is producing all their own nutrition by themselves, actually comes first. But then when you get any kind of state ideology, the king will say, I am your parent. I came before you. I created you. I created this whole thing. I taught you how to... Uh, and, then, and then they'll displace it, right, onto a, a god. And this may be part of the, the state apparatus. It's one kind of state apparatus is this early kind of theocratic state apparatus where, again, alienating itself more and more from the actual class conflict, class contradiction that birthed it, the state apparatus sort of comes to stand above society and appear to stand outside it, appear to be disinterested, appear to be neutral, right? And part of that appearance of neutrality is actually by situating itself as an origin point, uh, that God actually created the grain, and then the king took the grain, received the grain from his ancestor, the god, and gave it to you, the peasant, you lucky bastard. And, and he is letting you and teaching you how to do this work, even though, of course, historically, uh, the worker comes first. And, of course, crucially, this weapon can be turned around and used to attack its creator. The dictatorship of the proletariat, the dictatorship of the peasantry can use these ideologies of gods to talk about revolution and to inspire revolution and to embody it. And we're going to see that Ajit is extremely alive to the possibility of using bhakti, worship, ideas of, of gods, and, and not monism, but a kind of dualism. We need a kind of dualism in order to be dialectical and in order to move history forward. That's the way to really turn the wheel. You're not turning anything if you are a monist, an absolute monist, because you don't want it to change. You don't want class rule to go away. You don't want a real new thing. Yeah? Um... And in that sense, there can be nothing new under the sun under monism, but under uh, dialectical thought, absolutely. And when, that's what we get when we look at uh, the whole sweep of human history, the 200,000 years, it's only the, the last some percent, you know, the last 6,000 that we have class rule. And so it's class rule that is new under the sun. And it, it came into being and it can go away. And something truly new can take its place. So, nourish the gods with sacrifice, and they will nourish you as well. By nourishing each other, you will realize the highest good. Nourished by sacrifice, the gods will give the pleasures you desire. Right? Oh, the king will give you a good life. You'll have an orderly society. All of this. One who enjoys such gifts without repaying them is just a thief. Okay? The good who eat of the remains from sacrifice rise up faultless. And that's being a peasant, even not talking about gods, you know. You eat of the remains of your taxes. You eat of the remains of taxes, and then when you add the layer of the gods, you eat of the remains of sacrifice. But the wicked, who cook only for their own sakes, eat their own filth. So if you're a hunter-gatherer, you're a subsistence producer, you know. Uh, you have no gods, no masters. At least uh, not ones that demand sacrifice in this tributary sort of way, right? The, this class society ideology is definitely telling you that is terrible, that is cursed if you do that. Beings come to exist by food, 
which emanates from the rain god, who comes to be by sacrifice, which arises out of action. So, but then here we get this interesting water cycle kind of. This is, uh, you know, there's they set up a, a logical system here, and it works. Um, beings come to exist by food, which emanates from the rain god, who comes to be by sacrifice. If you don't sacrifice, you won't get rain, right? If you don't get rain, you won't get food, and so on. It's a that's how. But that, yeah, that God is in there, um, again, as a stand-in for the king, as an emanation of the, an alienation, a self-alienated avatar <laughs> of the, the actual material class contradiction. Know that action comes from Brahman. Brahman comes from the eternal, so the all-pervading Brahman is based in sacrifice forever. One who in this, wheel, in this world does not turn the wheel thus setting it in motion, lives uselessly, O son of Prita, a sensual, malicious life. But the man whose only pleasure and satisfaction is the self, which is his sole contentment too, has no task he must accomplish. So the self-satisfaction, I don't see this in Buddhism. This is a place where I, you know, I'm much more familiar with Japanese Buddhism. So I'm coming at this Indian Brahmanism as, as kind of a neophyte, but a lot of it I can really recognize. A lot of it, it's like, oh, you know, I mean, like if you know Christianity and you learn more about Judaism itself, you, you can see a lot of things that, oh, actually, yeah, Christianity is just kind of reproducing this thing that also exists in Judaism, even though it intends to be a critique and intends to be an overturning of Judaism in so many ways. Oh, it's really got, yeah, it's family resemblance is definitely there. That's the same here in some ways, but this would be one, yeah, satisfaction in the self. That would not be very a primary point in Buddhism, which is his sole contentment too. He has no task he must accomplish. So, okay, yeah, you're just happy with yourself and, you know, I am who I am. That would be a good, that can be a good point. That man finds no significance in what has or has not been done. Moreover, he does not depend on any being whatsoever. I mean, if you were a hunter-gatherer with a 13-hour work week, uh, then you might have that attitude and be ve it would be very congruent. But otherwise, okay, this seems like a fantasy of uh, ruling class individualism. Therefore, act without attachment in whatever situation, for by the practice of detached action, one attains the highest. Only by action, Janaka and the others reached perfection. So that's a character... In the Bridamaranyaka Upanishad, an exemplar of the warrior king who is also a man of discipline, a yogi. Yeah, only by action Janaka and the others reached perfection. In order to maintain the world, your obligation is to act. To maintain the world. Kings maintain the world by acting in service of class power. You can see what the 19th century robber barons and, and early bourgeoisie that you can see why they love this so much. Whatever the best leader does, the rank and file will also do. Everyone will fall in behind the standards such a leader sets. O son of Prita, there is naught that I need to do in the three worlds, nor anything I might attain, and yet I take part in action. For if I were not always to engage in action ceaselessly, men everywhere would soon follow in my path, O son of Prita. Should I not engage in action, these worlds would perish utterly. I would cause a great confusion and destroy all living beings. The unwise are attached to action, even as they act, Arjuna. So, for the welfare of the world, the wise should act with detachment. 
I mean, there's a lot to that, right? Like contentment, a certain kind of contentment and, and being at a certain level okay with yourself. I am who I, I am. I know who I am. I am okay with myself. And then I can act. Then I can try my best. Then I can, right? And this is something that I think a lot of spirituality can, can uh, help us to achieve. Practice properly. Practice dialectically. Practice in a living fashion. Not, not dead and ossified, but, but really cooking fresh cooking fresh and eating raw from the, in the spiritual world, then you can get contentment with yourself, contentment with your destiny, right? Not as a member of a class necessarily, or, you know, as a member of the working class, a representative of, the, of humanity that, that works and creates, creating humanity, right? Not parasitic, taking, sucking, predatory humanity. So, yeah, maybe you do have a class identity, you, you know. But ultimately, our uh, goal is a stateless, classless society. And that's where all this stuff about just sitting back and, and making selflessly making the world turn, this rhetorical pose would, would actually look really good on a hunter-gatherer. And it's, it's this uh, royal caste that is appropriating that you might say feudalism appropriates that pose uh in a way that is very artificial but we in the kingless generation it suits us perfectly the unwise are attached to action even as they act arjuna so for the welfare of the world the wise should act with detachment okay arjuna said say what impels a man to do such evil krishna what great force urges him forces him into it even if he is unwilling the blessed lord said Know that the enemy is this, desire, anger, whose origins are in the quality of passion, all-consuming, greatly harmful. As fire is obscured by smoke or by dust, a mirror's surface or an embryo by its membrane, so this is covered up by that. Knowledge is constantly obscured by this enemy of the wise, by this insatiable fire whose form, Arjuna, is desire. Okay, that sounds kind of Buddhist. The senses, mind, and intellect are its abode, as it is said. Having obscured knowledge with these, it deludes the embodied one. When you have subdued your senses, then, O bull of the Bharatas, kill this demon, the destroyer of all knowledge and discernment. Senses are said to be important, but mind is higher than they are, and intellect is above mind. But self, with a capital S, is greater than all these. So knowing it to be supreme and sustaining the self with self, capital S, in this translation, I don't think there are capital, there aren't capital or small letters in uh, Devanagari anyway. Uh, but that's, that's to, for clarity, I think. We're talking about like Atman in a couple different senses. So uh, sustaining the self with self Slay the foe whose form is desire, so hard to conquer, Arjuna. Okay. Well, you could just slay your fucking desire to uh, oppress and exploit peasants on this land that you're fighting for, right? You could just do that. You could not be an aristocrat. But, uh, okay. So then, at this point, I think we've kind of covered, you get the idea, and we can kind of skip to the end uh, of this version which would end at a certain point in chapter 11, although there's more to the poem after this. The full poem, again, will be up on the Discord server. But just at the end, basically, uh, Krishna reveals himself 
to Arjuna in some kind of like special truer form. And, and then we finish up with this little statement that's actually relevant for what's coming uh, in Ajit's discussion, right? Um, it is difficult to see this aspect of me that you have seen. Even the gods are forever desirous of seeing it. Not by studying the Vedas, nor even by austerities, and not by gifts or sacrifice may I be seen as you saw me. But by devotion undisturbed can I be truly seen and known and entered into Arjuna, O scorcher of the enemy, who acts for me depends on me, devoutly, without attachment or hatred for another being, comes to me, O son of Pandu. So, in Tilak's discussion and Ajit's critique, is this bhakti, is this worship, is this jnana, is this meditation, or is this karma yoga? Is this practice acting as a member of the ruling class? I think it kind of is mostly about acting on, as a member of the ruling class. Who acts for me depends on me, devoutly without attachment or hatred for another being. Yeah, so it's a kind of liberal, like, non-hating. Uh, we, we don't like violence, but, but we're going to do it kind of attitude. Okay, so yeah, back with Ajit now, right? So Tilak is arguing, the spiritual view goes beyond the sensuous world. It is guided by the realization, acceptance of a supreme being or ultimate truth, which can be appealed to. One's action can be justified in reference to it. The do's and don'ts prescribed by all religions are set by this. Tilak accepts that all religions teach love and compassion to one's fellow human beings. However, he argues, non-Vedic religions are unable to provide a coherent reasoning to substantiate this teaching. Contrarily, Advaita's concepts of para-Brahma and Atma, its teachings on their oneness and the all-pervasive presence of para-Brahma within everything, ensures this. Since all are part of para-Brahma, the, the all, the one, right, we heard in the poem, a solid basis is given by Advaita. Um, Advaita, again, non-dualism. To see oneself in the others and behave with them as one would with oneself. Well, except you wouldn't kill yourself, would you? <laughs> like um, over, over a dispute over uh, the right to exploit uh, the peasants on some land. Advaita gives a consistent, correct, and comprehensive foundation to base ethics on, according to Tilak. That's why Brahmanism is superior. The unity of the Atma and Nirguna Parabrahma is one of the pillars of the Gita's ethics of action. So we did see that, right? Krishna employs it to overcome Arjuna's ethical dilemma. Why make war and bear the sin of fratricide, killing your brothers? He teaches Arjuna that the Atma is never born, nor does it die. Even after a person is killed, the Atma remains. It is indestructible, imperishable, uncreatable, and eternal. It's the one world soul, right? He who gains this knowledge can neither be killed nor kill. Just as one takes off soiled clothes and wears fresh ones, the Atma sheds the old body and joins with a new one. Therefore, there is no point in being saddened by what happens to any material body. But Ajit points out, you know, just as we saw, can't it be used equally consistently to argue the opposite, i.e. turning away from the battle? If no one can be really killed, then what is the point in waging war? There is also the danger of this thesis of not killing though killing, being employed to justify plain murder. Tilak admits as much and tries to get out of this predicament through a lengthy note. His defense, however, is rather lame, says Ajit. 
So if Ajuna will not really kill anyone, why should he take the trouble to engage in bloody war? Moreover, having gained Janana about the oneness of Atma and Parabrahma, isn't avoiding war the more correct thing to do? Tilak accepts that, quote, some other powerful reasoning has to be advanced to answer this. In his opinion, this is in fact the crux of the ethics advanced by the Gita. Unsurprisingly enough, given the Brahmanist thinking it is part of and serves, the answer, the other powerful reason, is nothing other than an appeal to Chaturvarna, the graded division of society into four Varnas. Okay, class society. From the lofty heights of philosophy to a rather mundane matter concerning the social role given by a division of labor, the descent is indeed rather abrupt. Indeed, right? I mean, we suddenly... There's some real great like philosophical points in there, but it's all being mobilized toward uh, maintaining class rule. And, you know, without goes without saying, you see this in all different other religions. And this is what I'm interested in, sort of what is the articulation point between material base of, of relations of production, right? And then the superstructure, the cultural structures that either promise to free us from those. Um, very often, you know, we, we learn things, with our, we think things with our minds that lead us to engage in action, right? We take actions, we do particular practices, we acquire habits, we acquire organization. We want to have uh, all of these things, right? Um, and, but the, the important question is, how is it that we can uh, get traction, where is the where does the rubber meet the road? How does it right? How can thought actually uh, make a difference in the world? And we want to look at both sides of that. How can it can thought be used for class rule? How can it be used against class rule? Both of these things are possible, even if the material is prior, as I definitely think. Quero destino, quero no cry no destino. Eu meu fado enem ter fado nenhum. Cantalo bem, sempre se quero ter sentido. Sentilo como ninguém, mas não ter sentido algum. Ai que tristeza esta minha alegria. Ai que alegria esta tão grande tristeza. É esperar que um dia ele não espera mais um dia por aquele que nunca vem é que aqui esteve presente ai que saudade que eu não que eu tenho de ter saudade saudades de ter alguém que aqui está e não existe sentir-me triste só para me sentir também me alegre sentir-me bem só para eu andar tão triste so quoting Ajit again, uh, we have definitely seen this. The Gita was unapologetic, explicit in extolling the Varna order, the caste order, and buttressing it with claims about its divine origin. The modern votaries of Brahmanism cannot simply repeat this. They are forced to sanitize Chaturvarna in order to face up to contemporary democratic sentiments. They argue that Varna is not the same as caste and insist that Varna division was based on quality. Some say that it denoted the, quote, natural inclinations of individuals, which allowed their separate grouping. Oh, they just wanted to be a you know, member of the untouchables. Some others claim that it was originally meant to denote rising grades of spirituality. Yeah, well, 
I mean, this is kind of what Jesus was militating against in a lot of his diatribes. He's talking about sort of Pharisees have bought their way into a particular... Basically, the society has solidified to the point that those who have the most money are able to buy the sacrifices and sort of um, whether authentically or not, the people with privilege economically are the ones who are able to claim greater spiritual merit. And there will be a tension like this in any revolution that is trying to build socialism. Whenever, As soon as we make a change in relations of production, we need to think about how are we going to prevent a capitalist restoration? How are we going to prevent a, a swing back into class rule uh, as the seeds of a new bourgeoisie are born from the party apparatus itself? This has happened again and again. This is something Mao was extremely conscious of. He spoke very openly about how this is going to happen. Um, listen to the People's History of Ideas podcast uh, for extremely knowledgeable uh, run-through of all of that history. So this gesture of, of making like, oh, we're all one. We're all part of the same world soul and stuff, right? It seems very uh, magnanimous, right? And very... Um, Mahatma, right? Great, uh, great sold, doesn't it? To to say that, uh, but but what are you actually doing? How how is that now coupled with this ca this casteism? Yeah, um, the the you're supposed to be one with everyone. How are you going to do that, and then have this caste system, right? Um, Brahmanism teaches that anyone who is able to realize that there is as much atma in another body as there is in one's own, is suited for gaining moksha, gaining uh, enlightenment. This large-heartedness apparently excluded the shudras and women. These are uh, untouchables, right? Even today, the dalits, other oppressed castes, adivasis, and women are seen as lesser beings. Uh, you know, these, these castes are, are a lot of the members of the, the Indian revolution today, right? Uh, very much. They do not have a place in the Brahmanist um, Hindutva order that Modi is, is bringing to bear. But they, nevertheless, have been able to raise the greatest general strike in all of human history just in January of 2021, I think it was. And so there, too, we see there is something new under the sun. And there's very much something beyond Varna Dharma. The ingrained disdain Brahmanism has toward them comes out when the Gita speaks about the, the equanimous gaze of a jnani, one who has attained jnana, meditative enlightenment. It is said that this will be the same towards the true Brahmin, cow, elephant, and so too the dog and chandala. The hollowness of such magnanimity is well revealed in its ordering. The chandala, or dalit, gets positioned below the dog. <laughs> okay. Uh, this is, uh, yeah, it's, it seems really egalitarian or something in a certain way, but not in this formulation. It certainly is not. What immediately strikes one's mind is the arbitrary restriction that this whole message places on social mobility. Besides, any ethics that takes rigidity in social duties as its basis cannot stand up to the scrutiny of history. The social mobility seen in Western capitalist countries stands in sharp contrast to the rigid social structures that were seen in their feudal pasts. So they change, too. 
Every specific division of labor is determined by the socioeconomic structure prevalent in a given society. Though all societies need one form or the other of division of tasks, there is nothing to insist that a particular division of labor is inviolable or permanent. One can even conceive of a future society where, given a higher level of productivity, a formal division of labor would itself become unnecessary. Right? The productive forces advance to a certain point. We have a fully automated means of production. Nobody needs to have a different relation to production than anyone else. Everyone can simply receive the products of the means of production, and no one has to be a worker or an aristocrat. No more classes, and certainly no more castes. We can live much like we did uh, as hunter-gatherers, but this time with high technology. Furthermore, the whole argument underlying the concept of given social duties is itself quite problematic. Who gets to decide this? How is it determined? Yeah, if you're a lower class, you're a worker, um, you have to just accept your duty as God-given. Well, it's not a God that decided that, actually, is it? So Tilak notes the progress of humanity through various forms of social ordering or grouping, However, the rigidity of his thought process leads him to deny their historical determination and the progress of humanity through them. According to Tilak, we have arrived at the realization that all humanity is one through a lengthy process. Humanity passed through stages or periods of pride in one's clan, then caste, religion, and country. This categorization raises several questions. But what is more critical... Yeah, I mean, I would say the country. It ends in country... Um, there are other essays that go into more detail in this volume about the constructedness of the, the country of India out of many, many different nations that exist, right? It really, like, that's one of many places that shows the constructedness and the violence and the, of the, the whole nation form that's created to go with capitalism. Another one would be Anatolia, right? Turkey has... Just um, if you look at all the sites of Armenian uh, culture there, it's dotted all the way through. There's so many layers of so many different kinds of things going on there. Uh, but capitalism needs for it all to be monocultural in a certain kind of way, right? And it's a very violent way, right? Uh, even if it's within a, a certain kind of multiculture, you know, there's, that's an important point here too. Ajit also talks about a certain kind of discourse of religious freedom that Brahmanism tries to put forward as like, because much like Buddhism, you know, this too reminds me of Japanese Buddhism where like Kukai's 10 stages of the abiding mind can take all kinds of different uh, worship, like worship of gods and things and put them underneath his kind of uh, smells and bells ritual stuff and um, enlightenment through contemplating the magic properties of the Sanskrit alphabet, right? Uh, he can put those under. He can subordinate those and say, it's all a ladder leading up to my thing. Uh, and if, you're, if you believe something else, that's cool. You're just on a lower rung of the ladder, and someday you will reach up to my level, you know? Um, well, there's a similar thing here that Brahmanism does where it can absorb things, um, Ajit says that this is unique, this is very different from Christianity, and yeah, maybe it is, maybe it is, I, yeah, I suppose, on the surface, although in practice, you know, uh, apart from what Christianity has said about itself since about the time of the Crusades, 
if you look at historically what it was up until, you know, the insane uh, explosion of the white settler coming out, uh, you know, Spanish Portuguese empires, the age of exploration, all of this, right? Uh, before that, Christianity, it's the same Christianity, but it, it definitely accepts all kinds of um, provisionality and all kinds of multicultural, multi, yeah, multiculture, multi-value. Uh, and, and this is something that a lot of Spanish, golden age Spanish literature is still kind of shocked by, right? You get so many great things like Viaje del Turquia is a, an account of captivity uh, in Turkey, in the under the Ottoman Empire, and seeing there, you know, being shocked by seeing Christians who live in the Muslim world, and they're faithful Christians. This is the Christian that has existed up to this point, right? Uh, and for them, they're just like, oh, "What are you guys doing, you Crusaders, trying to run in and try to destroy everyone else?" And you know, all this. This is not what uh, was going on in Turkey at that time much more tolerant and much more kind of live and let live and we can uh, find common ground we can see uh, the other side of of any given question and we can basically think dialectically I think human beings can and do think dialectically at most times and it's really maybe a bit of an anomaly again you know, there's another level that whole since the age of exploration, which once again, 400 years ago, still two thirds of humanity was living outside the state, stateless, classless societies, two thirds of humanity, 400 years ago. So that too, maybe there was a kind of abolition of dialectical thinking that took part, that took place among certain people, right? A certain settlerism, you know, that exploded out. And I want to think about that every day. I want to think about how, how to not be a settler, how to, how to let go of, get away from settler consciousness, connect to the world. You know, if this was the only thing that you had, if you didn't, you know, weren't materially organizing, you weren't getting together with people, you weren't doing, you know, you got to do your reading group, you got to do, um, you got to build the kingless generation in all kinds of material ways. Uh, but then while we do that, you know, um, if you're just some hippie just saying, oh, we're going to just like get our hearts in the right place or, you know, the situationists or the, um, what is it called? The French um, communization theory, the idea that, you know, we just got to like set off the right kind of chain reaction, like an atomic, like an atomic reaction, actually. Like if we, uh, our anarchic uh, energy or communistic energy can somehow radiate out from our hearts through the hearts of others and across society, then uh, the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie will just be spontaneously overthrown. The state will be spontaneously abolished in that moment and so on. Uh, you know, that obviously is not the way, but, but yeah, I mean, be prefigurative. We want to be prefigurative to the extent that we can. And we also want to be able to get right with ourselves so that we can act in sort of the way that Krishna was talking about, right? Like you do want to be able to act dispassionately. No, you know, Lenin said, what communist ever feared death? How do you not fear death? Well, it's when you know that your life has meaning. You know that you're living a meaningful life. Uh, well, then you're not going to fear the fact that your life has an end, right? Uh, and then you can act with meaning. 
So anyway, Tilak sort of also under- has these levels of pride in clan, caste, religion, and then finally country for him is the largest group. Uh, but what is more critical is his insistence that these groupings should be retained. The argument is that every generation must necessarily pass along this trajectory in order to attain the highest level. And now this is very different from what I was saying earlier about how every generation must keep struggling because it's a different struggle every time. There are new struggles. There are new realities. New things are born. New things can actually be born. I do not believe in same stale essences. The the script is written and so on, right? And that's more what Tilak is saying. Uh, We have these stale essences that we must all... Uh, just conform to, and we can move up some kind of ladder, maybe, uh, right? But it's a predetermined ladder. This is the key thing that Ajit is pointing out so well. The argument is that every generation must necessarily pass along this trajectory in order to attain the highest level. An inevitable implication would be the periodic restoration of the outmoded. The whole history of humanity, this is just so good right here at the end, I'm going to have to read the whole thing. The whole history of humanity is witness to a broadening of consciousness. It thus arrived at the concept of the human, not man or woman, of this or that country, or of one or the other caste, clan, tribe, class, etc. Presently it is breaking off from anthropocentrism to arrive at a broader view. This locates humans among other species, not a master over them, but as a part of nature, along with them. I'm absolutely with that. You know, there's people we should critique uh, things that are cloaked as that, but are actually enforcing class rule. You know, there's there's strands of uh, strains of transhumanism that pretend that they are just about loving the environment when they're actually about abolishing uh, ideas of human rights that would prevent us or bioethics. Right. That would prevent us from inventing new kind of bio inscribed artificially biotech. Uh, created forms of class domination. I mean, it's a fact that that you got people at the World Economic Forum hinting very clearly at things that would make Sorry to Bother You look like a documentary. That's definitely not what we want, but uh, that doesn't mean, yeah, no, we need to uh, definitely improve our relationship to nature, right? The rest of nature, right? And, And retake our place as a part of nature because that's such a huge part of the beginning of this big round of class struggle, isn't it? The 200,000 years of hunter-gatherer subsistence production, the worldview that goes with this is not individualistic and it's not anthropocentric. It's not seeing a huge gulf between us and all of the other living things all around us. Right, animal and plant relatives, and the the whole environment, mountains, oceans, right. This is all. It's very good uh, to expand consciousness in this way. This was the outcome of passing through various social stages and forms of social organizations over generations. Reverses have happened. It was not a linear process. However, these slidebacks were not inevitable or necessary for the training of new generations. Each one of them gained from past knowledge and practices through a human construct, culture. The ethics of Brahmanism takes the permanency of social division of labor, whatever form it may take, and sticking to duties given by it as its basis. 
It rests its claims about its ethics being eternal and universal on this foundation. Its claim is negated by the fact that every division of labor is transient. Moreover, the division of labor of every exploitative society mainly serves the interests of exploiters. Hence, it is oppressive for the masses. It can never be equally good for all members of the society. To sum up, when guided by its concepts of Atma and Nirguna Brahma, the, the one, the great kind of world soul, right? Brahmanism fails to give any definitive guidance for ethical action when it relies on karma and varna dharma, uh, that is your caste destiny. It fails the tests of eternality and universality. Brahmanism's ethics is thus nothing other than a legitimation of class, caste, or varna, and gender oppression. There is nothing differentiating it in essence from the ethics of any other ideology serving exploitation. Right? You can find this revisionist version of any, any religion. Right, It is only a particular instance of the bankruptcy of the ethics based on idealism. By its very nature, idealism can never derive principles of ethics from human existence in all its diversity and concreteness. It must necessarily resort to impositions. Idealism. You're resorting to an ideal. You're not looking at material reality in its particularity. This can come, this idealism, can come in varying avatars. It could come as a god, a nebulous supreme power, or an absolute idea. Whichever it may be, ethics then comes from edicts or predetermined principles, supposedly given by that superhuman entity. In the idealist view, the ordering of society and the positioning of individuals within it are invariably projected as something divinely sanctioned. Along with other ruling ideological forms of that society, its ethics also serves to legitimize the existing state of affairs. It thus furthers and secures the interests of the class, which stands to gain from that particular social structure at the expense of the great majority. Again, we can see this process that Lenin talks about of the, the state alienating itself from the actual real class contradiction that has given birth to it and it stands over them and pretends to be pretends to be neutral so but there, at the same time though uh in the essay the limits of absolute monism ajit is very interested in the other forms of religious practice other than uh this you know action in accordance with class interest right uh carrying out your varna dharma right uh, the other things being meditation and worship. Ajit introduces some more progressive strains of Hinduism, right, that are based on these, these principles. Ramanuja reduced caste-determined karma to insignificance by declaring worship of God, bhakti, as the path to moksha, to the path to uh, liberation, enlightenment, right? Uh, and among the bhakti streams of thought of this period... Basava and his companions in the 12th century take the place of honor. Basava's Lingayat movement was an all-out attack on the oppressive concepts and practices of Brahmanism, such as the caste system and the demeaning of women. One of Basava's trenchant vachanas makes fun of the Brahmanic taboo on menstruation by pointing to its role in reproduction. Basava did not appeal to Brahmanic texts like the Vedas, Smirtis, Gita etc., for his authority, he squarely declared the washerman, woodcutter, and others of the lowest of the low as his venerated gurus. 
though centered on the worship of Shiva, Lingayat Bhakti was radically different from other Bhakti movements. And we see this is very common, uh, this is very similar to the Japanese situation. That is an interesting parallel there, that various Pure Land schools, on the one hand, uh, the Pure Land, which is where, you know, again, it's a savior religion centered on the Buddha Amida, who has done, uh, we, yeah, I, I mentioned this earlier. So, uh, you know, the, the, knowledge, the logic of the Pure Land, of being reborn in the highest of the high section of the Pure Land and so on, uh, that whole vocabulary of that is used as a metaphor for class status in the tale of Genji. For example, the, the rainy night critique of ranks which I'd love to do a podcast on sometime. I suppose I'll have to. Um, Genji and his friends are talking about, you know, the highest of the high. And they use the term for, like, those born in the highest level of the pure land, uh, supposedly because of having high amount of faith in Amida, right? That is becomes a, a discourse of class privilege in that setting. Uh, however, in medieval Japan, things like the, the Jishu, or the dancing nembutsu, uh, chanting the Buddha's chanting Amida's name uh, together with dance in various marketplaces. This was very popular among different outcast groups, different uh, yeah people associated with the marketplace, people associated with uh, really the, like the fringes of society, uh, which was plenty big in medieval Japan. It's really interesting how times of collapse. I mean that would be another part of the story of times of collapse when, in fact, freedom and peace uh, increase for the vast majority of people, right? The, the scribes and the Pharisees that serve the ruling classes are going to write about those times as if they're horrible, and, oh, isn't it so good that now we've restored order and we have a state again, and all of this, we have the ruling class back on, in control. They write about it that way, but again, that's only the self-portrait uh, of the state that we get. That's the self-portrait of the ruling classes that we get in... Uh, all the world's literature, basically everything that most things that get written down, you know, and uh, these times of collapse, actually, and, and chaos, uh, people's health goes up. The average peasant lives better because they go back to hunting and gathering and subsistence production and they don't they're not working as hard to support a parasitic ruling class. Right. And yeah, a part of those uh, very sort of mass forms of Buddhism in the medieval period do tend to involve bhakti. They involve worship uh, of gods. And that does introduce an element of dualism. It introduces a dialectical element. You can have an element of critique, right? And Ajit is very interested in this too. I really, really recommend that whole book. It's, yeah. And he has, uh, Ajit writes on medium.com as well. So just sign up there. You can uh, check that out, check out all his writings, uh, even on recent news so, all right, we're nearly at two hours now. This is plenty long, uh, but let me act without uh, uh, attachment. I'll, I will podcast without attachment and get this out there. I'm Fergal Schmoodlock, and I have anointed you with the anointing of the kingless generation. <laughs> Umehana kaua ike aloha, ikabili e kaunu o ke kua hivi.